Well, I, I know asking these types of questions when there aren't actually people sitting in front of me right now can be a little bit strange, be a little bit weird, but I'm just going to go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, d- does anyone watching right now, tuning in right now, uh, enjoy traffic? Like, like enjoy just, just sitting in, in traffic in your car. Now, I, I feel relatively safe asking that question, a question that I'm sure that you thought was probably going to be posed to you here on Easter, uh, because I pretty much know how every single one of you would respond to that if you were sitting in front of me right now. Everybody would be giving me a very definitive no. People would be shaking their heads back and forth. Uh, some of you, uh, you might not actually mind spending time behind the wheel of a car. I'm actually one of those people. I actually kind of enjoy driving. In fact, prior to becoming a pastor, uh, I was actually in medical sales. I would annually put, put on my vehicle around 70,000 miles every single year. Uh, most of those miles actually with a smile on my face. But as soon as the freeway, as soon as the highway would begin to slow down, and as soon as we would reach that standstill, almost instantaneously something strange would happen. My blood would begin to boil. I would start to get very irritable. My my left leg would start firing up and down at a pretty rapid pace. And again, I, I doubt I'm really alone on that. I've actually never met anyone who enjoys sitting in traffic. And, and the reality is, as most of you have probably conceded, you can't really do anything about it. It's just kind of a part of life, right? And for some of you, it's just like in the morning when you're driving to work, on the way home, when you're coming home from work, it's just like, I'm going to sit in traffic. Well, enter a Mr. Frantisic Hadrava. I am probably butchering this poor man's name, but he is a real man from the Czech Republic whom, like all of you was also not a fan of traffic and didn't really appreciate his morning commute. But unlike most of you, he refused to believe that he could not do anything about it. He he took what he saw as a problem into his own hands and he became determined to sit in traffic no more. The solution, if you're curious, It would cost him roughly $4,200 in the better part of two years of his life. Here, I present to you the solution. This is Mr. Hadrava right here with the solution to his traffic problem. That is right, an airplane. Mr. Hadrava, rather than continuing to sit in his car day after day after day, chose to instead build an airplane from scratch. Now, You can actually go out and buy kits for airplanes, but he, again, built his entirely from scratch. As a side note, uh, I struggled to change the oil in my lawnmower. And here we have people like Frantisic right here, who is literally building an airplane from scratch, making husbands like me look bad all over the world. Now, the plane is constructed largely from wood and is modeled, just in case you're curious, after the U.S. designed Minimax light planes. I have no idea what that means, but some of you aviation aficionados, maybe that means something to you. Now, now with this passenger plane ready to rock at a price tag that is likely less than the automobile that you drive to work, his morning commute is now only seven minutes, and no, you guessed it, there is never any traffic. Now, just in case curiosity is now getting the best of you, he actually lands in a field across from the office where he works. And then because it's so light, he actually literally pulls the plane across the road into the employee parking. Uh, there it is, just like everyone else. Now, now here's the kicker, and here's really why I felt compelled to tell you this story this morning. Uh, as mentioned, his morning commute is now only actually seven minutes, which he actually says could be actually just five minutes, but he chooses to take the more 
more scenic route so he doesn't wake people up as he's flying his plane overhead in the morning. How considerate of him. Uh, when he was driving, like, like all of us, like the rest of us peasants, it took him, you ready for this? It took him 14 minutes to get to work. Just 14 minutes, which, which made me think to myself, he did what? L- ladies and gentlemen, I presume that we have just stumbled across the most impatient person on the planet. Now, when I was researching and reading a little bit about this guy, I just kind of assumed that his morning drive was like going to be at least an hour or longer. Many of you, you make that terrible trek down 75 every single day or you attempt to shoot across 96. I mean, that's like build a plane to avoid worthy traffic. But 14 minutes, (laughs) that's not really that bad. Now, given the craziness that our human beings, uh, myself very much included, I have a lot of these he, these she did what moments. In fact, I have one of these moments almost every single day. In fact, as I was actually writing this message, I was thinking back to some of my most notable I did what moments. And I will spare all of you from sharing those moments that almost immediately came to mind. And the truth is, I doubt that I'm alone. You too have likely had a number of these moments in your own life as well, where almost immediately after you're asking yourself, I did what? Now, now here at Grumlaw, and, and this will likely come as a surprise to no one, uh, we talk an awful lot about this guy who went by the name of Jesus, as in God in a bod Jesus. And, and, and throughout Jesus's life, he, he was a part of a lot of these he did what moments, uh, more than what most of us would probably consider to be normal. In fact, kind of a startlingly high number of these he did what moments. So you see, even the most devout atheists, even the most staunch opponents of Christianity acknowledged that Jesus had a way of drawing a crowd, that that, that he seemed to have this knack for pulling off what previously seemed to be impossible. Now, now the default word for these moments tends to be that we tend to use is is miracle. And and today, what I want to do is I want to draw our attention to what I believe to be the most notable he did what moment, the most notable miracle in the history of mankind. But, but before we jump to that miracle, I, I want to show you one of the more appalling statements that Jesus made during his time on earth. And, and in a lot of ways, it was this statement and even more his continued revisitation to this statement. It was something that he just would not shut up about that would eventually become one of the most significant reasons that he would be killed. Now, now to find this statement, we're going to jump into a book called Matthew. I'm not going to assume that all of you are super familiar with this book that we call the Bible, but it's kind of divided into two sections. The first half, we call that the Old Testament. The second half, we kind of refer to that as the New Testament. And the New Testament kicks off with these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These four books document for us Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection as told from four different people's perspectives. So we're going to read a little bit about the life of Jesus and specifically this appalling statement that he let come forth flying out of his mouth in the 24th chapter of Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. There it says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples, these guys that spent virtually every waking moment with Jesus, came up to him to call his attention to his buildings. Now, quick kind of press pause moment here. The temple was a big deal. The, the, the temple was the epicenter of, of the Jewish life, of the Jewish community. It was arguably the most significant, the most important building in the entire world, but certainly the most important building for all of the Jewish people because it was literally the place where the presence of God dwelt. It was there, right there, in the temple in Jerusalem. So temple, big, big deal. 
And they say to Jesus, do you see all these things? It was the disciples' way of communicating, hey, do you see how impressive the temple is? Did you see Jesus all of the attention to detail? I mean, this is a pretty impressive building, don't you think? I mean, the presence of God dwells here. And Jesus, rather than kind of just going along with all this and going, wow, yeah, this is really an impressive building, he lets this statement come flying out of his mouth, and this is what I have been alluding to. He says, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, because we are not Jewish people living in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago, we cannot appreciate just how appalling this statement was. I doubt any of you are reading this right now thinking to yourselves, wow, that that was appalling. So a a little history, a little context, just what I'm sure that you were hoping for here with your your Easter brunch, but I think it'll help the story come to life. The, The temple, as mentioned, was a big, big deal for the Jewish people. Like a, you never say anything bad about the temple or you might just get yourself killed type of deal. But plain and simple for first century Jews, nothing and no one was greater than the temple. The the, the temple was the center of the world in their minds. It was the epicenter of Jewish religious life. It was quite literally the presence of God on earth. If you wanted to be close to God, you best be close to the temple. And to say anything negative about the temple was to insult God because again, after all, he dwelt there. It would reflect this extraordinary arrogance, ignorance, or insanity. To speak ill of the temple was again speaking ill of God. And again, back at this point in history, there was no greater offense than to insult God, to insult the temple. As I was preparing this, as I was writing this message, I tried to come up with in my mind an illustration that could reflect the emotional connection to the temple in a way that resonates with Americans living in the 21st century. And the best thing that I could come up with was was the relationship between a mother and a child. So all you mamas, listen up. If I started parading around and saying really terrible things about your kids, and I started pointing out faults in your kids, physical faults, things I'm like, oh man, your, your kid's head is just so stinking big. And I started pointing out what I thought would character flaws within your kids. How long are you going to put up with that? Are you going to allow me to spew gossip about your kid? Are you going to allow me to say terrible things that eventually your kid is actually going to be destroyed in the very near future? Heck No. In fact, some of you just thinking about that right now, it's kind of making your blood boil. You're getting a little bit defensive. So so for Jesus to claim that the temple will be demolished, that's a big deal. Those are fighting words. That's a controversial, you best watch it words. Those are the type of words that when Jesus said these things, these 12 disciples that were hanging out with Jesus, they start looking around going, "Did, did anyone else just hear that? Because if anybody else did just hear that, it is probably time for us to begin disassociating ourselves with Jesus. This claim also on top of this, it seemed completely outlandish because of the attention to detail in the construction of the temple. I mean, Jesus just used this phrase, thrown down, as in thrown down into the 37-acre plaza in the valley below. But, but, but how could that be? Because the only force that, that could cause that type of damage would maybe be an earthquake. But again, digging deeper here into the history, uh, Herod the Great actually rebuilt the temple in such a way to make sure that the structure was virtually earthquake proof because earthquakes were so frequent in that area. 
The, the entire structure was made from cut stone with the foundation stones weighing as much as 500 tons. I mean, an earthquake would cause damage. There might be some cracks, but not what Jesus just described. And the only human force capable of this type of destruction would be the Roman legions. But again, they would never do such a thing since it was the Romans who built the temple in the first place. So, so naturally, as you might assume, this is kind of gnawing at the disciples that Jesus would throw this statement out there. Because these disciples, they were Jewish men. They grew up in Jewish homes. They understood the value of the temple. They understood just how important the temple was. And so eventually they asked this question that is begging to be asked. It says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? Jesus, we we don't know if, if you're recognizing this, but you just said something that is like, really like kind of getting underneath our skin. So why don't you just kind of tell us when, when is this all going to go down? And, and what's so incredible is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, three of the four gospel accounts all record for us Jesus's answers. And what follows is the most remarkable and verifiable prophecy in the history of mankind. And that's not an exaggeration. This is a big, big deal. (laughs) Hopefully you're at least mildly excited here for the response that Jesus is about to utter. Uh, I'm about to come flying off the stage here for for Jesus's next words. He says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. Now, now again, most of you who are watching right now, you're probably going, I, I don't get it. Why, why did you say that was such a big deal? But, but here's why this was so significant. Because 40 years after Jesus made this disturbing revelation, this disturbing prediction, the soon-to-be elected emperor of Rome, General Vespasian, trapped thousands of Jewish rebels inside the city of Jerusalem. It was this culmination of a four-year campaign between the Jewish rebels and the Roman Empire. Historians will traditionally refer to this as the Jewish War. And at this time, thousands upon thousands of Jewish pilgrims were making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate a religious festival. And in a very cruel, yet a very, very cunning move, Vespasian allows and even escorts the travelers into the city gates. And once everybody had arrived, after days upon days on end, after thousands and thousands of Jewish people made their way into the city, he sealed the walls. And then he proceeded to play the waiting game as the Jewish people slowly began to starve to death. But by the time that the Roman army finally broke through and pounced, the Jewish people were too weak to fight and they were slaughtered. Those who were spared, not out of mercy, but out of greed, they were sold as slaves, hundreds of thousands. Jesus predicted this with these words. He says, they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. And here's again why this is so significant. These documents, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these three documents that all record for us, Jesus' prophecy right here, they were all written before A.D. 70. They were all written before the Jewish war transpired. 
And so if you're, you're tracking with me right now, it is impossible to avoid the conclusion that Jesus just predicted in extraordinary detail the end of ancient Judaism. And if he did, one would be a fool to not give careful consideration to everything else that Jesus had to say as well. And here's the craziest part. When the Roman legions finally got to the sacred temple and they defeated the rebels who were defending it, they set fire to the temple and everything that could be burned was destroyed. Everything that had value was carted off. Pretty standard military fare. But but what happens next was unprecedented and unexpected. Titus, the Roman who is now in command of the army, he ordered that every stone used in the construction to be torn down dragged to the edge of the plaza and pushed off into the valley below. Many of those massive stones still remain to this day where they landed nearly 2,000 years ago. Again, the words of Jesus, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. He did what? Did Jesus seriously just predict the unthinkable? And when you read this account, it's so easy to imagine the pain in Jesus' voice as he predicted these things. I mean, these were his people. This was his nation. But something far greater than the temple had already arrived. And it actually wasn't a what. It wasn't another building, it was a who. And the disciples were looking right at him. And and as it would turn out, Jesus kind of had a way of predicting these he did what moments. See, throughout Jesus' time on earth, he he would say things like this, that the the son of man must suffer many things. The son of man was a title that Jesus would use for himself. Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So so here goes Jesus predicting what what would be his death, that he was going to be put to death, but then making an arguably even more outlandish prediction than the temple being destroyed, that three days after his death, that he would actually rise from the grave, that he would rise again. And the first part of that prediction, the first part of that prophecy is utterly undeniable. We simply have too much historical evidence to suggest a guy who went by the name of Jesus a couple thousand years ago was killed on a cross by the religious leaders. And after he's killed, we also have a whole mess of historical evidence to tell us that everyone ran away, that there were no Christians, that all hope was lost, that everybody just assumed it was over, that Christianity as a movement had died because, again, there was no Christianity. There were no Christians because the guy who represented Christianity had just been killed on a cross. When Jesus died, the movement died. There were no Christians. His closest friends, his family, his own brothers, his own siblings, they all ran away. They all abandoned the movement. Even those 12 guys who spent virtually every waking moment with him, even those guys that witnessed all the miracles, they were part of all those teachings. They heard these predictions right from Jesus' lip. They were out. They had abandoned him. 
They ran away like cowards. But, but three days after his death, th- this is where the story becomes both unexplainable and undeniable. It's unexplainable because there is no good explanation as to why Jesus' disciples are now on the front lines risking their lives for the movement that we now refer to as Christianity. That the same cowards that headed for the hills just days earlier, that lost all hope, that said it's done, they're suddenly back. And they have this renewed sense of zeal, and most of them would be killed for their faith in Jesus, even though just days earlier they had abandoned all of it. And it's undeniable, because here we are a couple thousand years later, and we're still talking about it. And believe it or not, the most reasonable explanation for this 180 that we see in the followers of Jesus was that he came back to life. That, that, that he pulled off the unthinkable. I mean, did, did, someone, did, did someone just successfully predict their own death and resurrection? Because, because if he did... I don't think that that simply requires a, wow, that's neat. Wow, how ironic. I I, I think it demands a response from you. I, I, I think it reveals implications for every single person that is watching right now. See, the reason this morning... That, that I would spend Easter, that I would take the time going, going into painstaking detail about the destruction of ancient Judaism as predicted by Jesus. The, the, the reason that I address Jesus' prediction of his own death and resurrection is because right now, with everything that we have going on in our world, with the chaos that is the coronavirus, with all the fear that we have circulating right now, I'm hearing a lot of talk around this idea of faith versus fear and faith crushes fear and even faith over fear. And I'm not trying to poke fun at those things. I mean, it sounds nice, but to be honest, I don't really know what this means. Because, don't miss this, following Jesus is not a blind faith. I I mean, look at just the two examples of what we unpacked this morning. Following Jesus isn't faith for faith. It's not this blind hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not just this confidence that maybe it's just all going to work out in the end. Do not miss this. With Jesus, it has already worked out out. He he already predicted his death. He already predicted his resurrection, then pulled it off. What else do you want from him? Jesus' followers aren't a bunch of wishful thinkers. No, no. We put our faith in a risen Savior who, again, I'm going to keep beating this in our heads, who predicted his own death, who predicted his own resurrection, then actually pulled it off. We're not grasping at straws. This isn't blind hope. No, no, we're we're trusting in something that already happened. We're not putting our faith in a something. We're, We're putting our trust in a someone. A someone who lives. 
I, I personally do not have confidence right now with everything we have going on in our world, with fear consuming so many people. I don't have a confidence right now because a book called the Bible tells me, I got this. You can make it. No, it's way better than that. I have confidence because of what happened on a cross and specifically in a grave 2,000 years ago. And every single one of you who, who are watching right now, you have the opportunity to place your trust in him as well. And, and, and listen, I, I know. I know that this morning I can kind of nerd out on these prophecies and hopefully you find some of this stuff to be as interesting as me. Hopefully I didn't just bore you to death here on, on Easter morning, but, but let's not forget what today is celebrating. That the God of the universe came down to earth to, to, to pay the penalty for your sin, to, to fix that sin problem that you have no ability to solve yourself. Jesus took the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders for you. Because he loves you that much. And not you in broad terms, but like specifically you. Jesus would have died for you if it was just you. And what's so crazy is our creator, the God of the heavens and the earth, he made the standard so simple. That the way that you would be declared righteous, the way that you would be called approved, the way that you would renew and fix that relationship between you and God, it's not based on what you've done. It's not based on your past. It is way simpler than that. It's faith. It's, it's trust. It's belief. Synonymous terms. Do, do, do you believe that God sent his one and his only son down to earth for you? to bear the weight of your sin, to fix the sin problem you can't solve yourself, but that three days later, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. That our God lives. And we're told that that acknowledgement of faith, that that trust wins us that right standing, that, that suddenly we're back that that relationship with our heavenly father is mended. I, I mentioned this last week. What I think this pandemic has revealed, perhaps more than anything else, is how badly our world needs Jesus. That, that, that suspicion that there's something missing, for most of you, if you're honest, it's, it's always been there. But now it's just a whole lot more obvious that, that some of your earthly securities have now been stripped away from you. And, and Jesus, he came to earth a couple thousand years ago so that that void might be filled. To, to mend that relationship that we screwed up between us and God with our sin. To fill that vacancy that we all know is there to tear down the temple so that we can now have a relationship with Jesus and go directly to him. He did what? Yeah, 
He died for you. But more importantly, he rose for you so that you can have new life. He, he loves you that much.